0: something we all need but few of us make time for. There's a Trinidadian saying about Americans, walk, walk, walk and dead. That's the American way. There has of late however, particularly in movement work been an effort to push the point that rest is critical to resistance and indeed also a revolutionary act. We are joined this morning by one such voice, Trisha Hersey. Hersey is an artist, poet, theologian, and community organizer. She is also the founder of the Nap Ministry, an organization that examines rest as a form of resistance by curating sacred spaces for the community to rest as a form of resistance. Trisha, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
1: Of course. Thank
0: you for having me on. I'm honored to be here. And Trisha, I actually, I want to start with current context uh, mm-hmm. because you are in Atlanta, and of course, on Law and Disorder, we are covering uh, the resistance yep. that is happening, uh, 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 you know, around Cop City, and yes. um, it, you know, it, this is it, this is I've been doing this this work for a long time, and mm. this is an intense, yes. protracted struggle at this point with brutal repression by the state, mm-hmm. and not a lot of arrest. And I'm <laughs> for you know for the front lines, and I'm just wondering. From your perspective, like this concept of rest as resistance, and something that actually, um, during times like these, organizers and frontline warriors need more than ever, right? So that they can keep mm-hmm. going. Can you talk about this concept of rest as resistance inside of a you know a, a context of real political upheaval and turmoil?
1: Exactly. Yeah, I, th- I love to talk about this because I think you know. The work that I've been doing with the NAP ministry is so multi-layered and has so many branches. But at the end of the day, um, I think sometimes people forget that I am an organizer. I was raised an organizer. My dad was a union organizer. My dad was deeply involved in the Black Panther Party in Chicago. And I... Was raised this way. So I have been organizing, being an activist, direct action. A lot of the work when I began to start the NET ministry was me while I was in direct action meetings that went on for 15, 12 hours, you know, and we're like on the phone, we're on, we're on our phones and we're texting each other because there's something that needs to be done. We're meeting all day. And so I am deeply, closely in a part of this community. I'm not coming from the outside saying, hey guys, go lay down when we know the empire needs to fall. Like, no, I'm in it, you know? And so I want to say and have always said to organizers that I've worked with that um we need you here. We need you alive. There is no way that we can be able to continue this work if we are deeply, deeply unwell. i work with people who have had aneurysms and strokes and mental health issues and sick and like are working 15 hour days. And I just don't understand in a lot of ways what has happened, um, to us in our thinking that we believe that this is, um, work that we can do from an exhausted state and body. It just isn't possible. And so in a lot of ways, I let, you know, organizers know that there is work that has been done already for us. And I think that rest um, as a spiritual practice, as a portal, as another dimension, as a generative state is a place that we really need to tap into as part of our strategic strategic planning around um, organizing. I don't think it needs to come as an afterthought or something that is after we've burnt out, after we've worked, you know, eight 80 hours in one week after um, the prisons that we are trying to close down, close. We need to be like in it all the time. It has to be foundational to our work. It has to be the center of our work to be able to see resting and slowing down and connecting and um, as a real true form of resistance and also a form of reparations to us. And so I tell them all the time, we can't be doing all of these things, and we're not here. So we need you here. We won't make it if we don't rest. And we and I need us all to make it so that we're able to tap into the power of what resting is um going to give to us. I believe our ancestors are waiting for us to lay our asses down so that they can <laughs> so that they can give us a word. They can give us some information that could help us in our organizing today. I think there are many things when I look at the idea of. Um, this ancestor connection and communication. I believe that there has been so much liberating work done for us. I talk about it in my book, the American Maroons of North A- North America, Harriet Tubman, my dad being an organizer. Like there's so much information that has already been done that we can tap into, but you can't tap into that brilliant inventive um, message If you're exhausted, if your brain is not working at the levels it should be working, if you're sick, if you're um, burnt out, you know, we're just repeating the same violence that the empire has taught us. And so grind culture is violence to push your body and to ignore it as if it isn't a divine dwelling place is a form of violence that has been taught to us by these systems. And so I will say that to organizers, I will say that begin to reframe resting as not a luxury or a waste of time, but key to our organizing strategy. And with older
0: heads and harder heads like mine, Trisha, that look at you, right, with all of the work falling down on top of our heads, and we say, mm.
1: how? Mm. What's your response? <laughs> I say we need to... Um, happened to our imagination. I believe like Bell Hook said, that imagination is one of the greatest tools of those who are oppressed. We have forgot what it means to imagine. We're simply reacting. We're reacting to the empire. We're reacting to what they've done. We're to, we got to go and do this. Like that is not generative work. That is not work that is liberating, nor is it tapped in to the higher power. To me, organizing work is a spiritual practice. It is spiritual work. And I think a lot of people forget that it is spiritual work to to be disrupting and pushing back against systems that are trying to degrade our divinity, because that's simply what these systems are doing to us. At the end of the day, they're degrading our divinity as true human beings. They're looking at us as not even a human, as someone, who doesn't deserve any type of justice or liberation. And so I say that we need to reclaim that. We need to go tap into our imagination space. We need to be able to freedom dream and dream ourselves free. And if the why is we need to plan out resting moments, we need to plan out, um, places and spaces where we can have space to daydream. We need to reimagine and ex- expand on the idea of what we think resting is. You tell an organizer, okay, you need to go rest. And they say, well, I could never do that. I could never go lay down. I have to go to this other meeting. I got to go down here and protest. I got to do this. But we can reimagine what resting is. We're not going to be able to continue to believe that resting is just one thing. Mm-hmm. That has been taught to us by the systems. The systems have taught us in a very wrong way that resting is what it really isn't. To me, being productive, resting, slowing down, all these things are key to our our liberation. And we do that by adding it into our strategic planning, by when we have meetings, don't have us just sitting all the time. You know, just simple as that. Like, why are we sitting for 10 hours going through this agenda because we're about to go down here and protest in front of the prison? Why are we why aren't we moving our bodies? <laughs> why aren't we getting fresh air? you know why aren't we eating well? Why aren't we having yoga mats and pillows and things for people to lay down? Why aren't we having moments to be able to breathe and meditate and daydream? Why aren't we using our entire bodies um the whole our entire bodies to be able to um, Tap into the work that we are called to do, because I believe organizers are called to this work, that you look and see what the world is around us. And of course you want to help. Of course you want to stop it. Of course you want it to end. But how could that happen when you're coming from it from an exhausted, burnt out state? I know what real exhaustion feels and looks like. And I think it's actually dangerous for organizers to be out here organizing from an exhausted state. I truly think we're not tapping in. We're not connecting enough. And it could be a dangerous place for us to be doing that. That's actually a really
0: good segue into my next question. Um, the very first sentence in your book says, rest saved mm-hmm. my life. Yes. T- take us to that moment. Take us Take us back before before you were the goddess <laughs> of, of, of rest <laughs> as resistance.
1: Right. Yeah. I was, I was, I mean, that, that sentence, I wanted to open the book that way because I just wanted to lay it out real simple and plain. This isn't some person who is just talking out of the side of their neck. Like I experimented with this idea of resting because I saw no other way. And I continue on in that paragraph saying that I was attempting to solve a problem in my own life. The problem that I saw was that I was not looking at my body as a whole divine dwelling place, that I was pushing it past the point of return, that I was damaging it. Mentally, I was damaging it. Physically, I was damaging it. My health was suffering. Um, My mental health was suffering. And so I really began to just see my body as a place where I can begin to experiment. I took a leap of faith. I had no idea that it would work. I was in graduate school working um, a full-time program. I was in there for four years, Raising a young child who's a seven year old young boy. I was working a job, two jobs, one job where I wasn't getting paid because it was a part of my education to have an internship to get contextual education. So I was doing that. I was also working a regular job at the, as an archivist at the library. And then I also was in class full time. And so my days would start at, you know, five in the morning sometimes and they wouldn't end to like maybe. Two, one, two in the morning. So it was like this full on burnout, violence, grinding, not listening to my body that was really wearing me out. And so I just decided to leap without a net. I decided to trust my own body more than I could trust the systems. I decided to say, let the chips fall where they may. I trust myself. If I fail out of school because I'm just going to nap instead of going to class, then so be it. (laughs) You know, if I am not able to. But I also greatly understood and and believed in myself. I believe that my body and my mind and my talents and gifts will make space for me. And so what the systems have done such a brilliant job of doing is ripping away our self-esteem and self-worth. We believe that we aren't worthy of rest. We don't deserve it. We believe that we only can be deserving of anything um, beautiful, anything liberating, if we do something, if we accomplish, if we check things off on a to-do list, if we um, continue to be Black excellence and all of these other um, narratives that I believe are toxic. And I believe that I just said to myself, I'm going to trust my ancestors. I trust the creator. I trust my body. I trust myself more than I trust any capitalism, white supremacy, all of the systems that were trying to pull me into this machine level pace of working. I was like, it's just not normal. And I understood that deeply in a real spiritual way. It it, it was really truly a experimentation and also a spiritual practice. It was me reaching into the depths and wells of my own understanding around my ancestors. I was reading arch- archival um slave narratives. I was thinking about my grandmother, my great-grandmothers. I was studying somatics, like the idea of what the body was going through when it goes through trauma. And I put those, all those things together and just begin to just nap. I began to, instead of going to class, I would take a nap on campus. <laughs> instead of staying up late, I would just lay on the couch and put the book on my chest that I was supposed to be reading and just take and go to sleep. And as I began to continue to do that, things just started to make more sense. I started to feel better. I began to make better connections in my research and I began to um, see or feel a real deep connection to my ancestors who weren't allowed a space to rest. I wanted to gain some form of connection to them to rest for them, for the dream space that was stolen from them. So it came in a slow way. It came in a way that was very much um, experimental, very much um, spiritual, very much a... Let the chips fall where they may. I don't belong to the system, so I'm not going to be a part of it anymore.
0: You mentioned your great-grandmother and your grandmother, and you talk about your grandmother, Aura, mm-hmm. in the, the book. I'd like you to oh, spend a little grandma. bit... Um, my listeners know I love talking about grannies. It's one I of my favorite things gra- to talk about, That's all I talk Red. about.
1: I talk about her all so, the time. I love her. Grannies <laughs> <are> the best. <laughs> yes. Um,
0: but but talk to us, or not but and, talk to mm-hmm. us about what she taught you about, Riff. Yeah. Huh?
1: Yo, Grandmama Aura, she is the muse of this work. She really... Um, the deeper I get into this work, the deeper I hold on to her energy and in her teachings, watching her as a, a refugee of Jim Crow terrorism. So she left uh, out of Greenville, Mississippi, like, you know, millions of other black people during the great migration. She's told me herself when I was really young that she left Mississippi because she had saw a lynching and she knew then and she did not want to, she's not going to see another one. She wasn't going to be lynching, neither were any of her um, children. And so she left and like, I love to say that she floated on this spaceship of uncertainty that she created. Like she got on a bus with a couple dollars and a little piece of paper of knowing where my other aunt who had already left to go meet up and they landed on the South side of Chicago. And so I watched this woman, um, have eight children, have dozens and dozens of grandchildren. I'm one of the many, and she just held space and held court in her home to just be, I mean, it's so radical to see a woman of that, um, of that type of movement for her to be in poverty, working two jobs. She was working at a hospital, um, cleaning, and also working for a family cleaning, um, deep, deep poverty. She gardened every day. She was deeply involved in um Pentecostal black church that was like down the street from her house that ended up being the church my father ended up pastoring later on. And so I watched her with all that was going on in her life every single day in between going to jobs, changing uniforms to go to this job, to go to that job, raising eight children, suffering from deep PTSD. Like we don't talk enough about the trauma of being a refugee from Jim Crow terrorists. We just talk about, oh, the great migration people left. No, people were running for their lives. They were running from the terror of um of racial trauma and they were leaving in the middle of the night with any no money, jumping on buses and just trying to make a way out of nowhere. And I'm so grateful for that energy of knowing it was time to have hope and knowing it was time to see. They knew that this wasn't what it was going to be here. My grandmother would say she didn't know what it would be like when she landed in Chicago. She just knew it wasn't Mississippi. She knew it wasn't that. So she had no idea what was waiting for her on the other side. And, you know, if you really want to talk transparent about it, she probably was dealing with the exact same things in Chicago because it's the United States. It's, it doesn't matter where you go. Racial terror and white supremacy is everywhere. But she left and she would sit on her couch every single day for 30 minutes to an hour. It would range depending on her schedule, but she would close her eyes and rest her eyes. We would be, it wouldn't matter what anyone else was doing. It didn't need to be silenced. It didn't need to be us sitting down. We didn't need to close the door. She sat on that couch and her eyes were closed. And we always thought she was sleeping, but she wasn't. She said she was um, resting her eyes and listening. She was listening to the universe. She was listening to God. She was listening. And I just think how beautiful that is for a woman, a black woman, refugee from the South to be sitting and listening in between her jobs, in between raising children, like what was she hearing? What was that listening giving her? What downloads was she receiving that allow her to go on, that allow her to make it, that allow her to um, have health and allow her to have leisure and pleasure and to be able to begin to heal herself. And so at the end of the day, this work is really an invitation to heal. It's an invitation for awareness. It's an invitation to raise your hand and say, hey, you know, I know this is what the culture is doing, but I want to say this isn't normal. It's not normal to burn out. Our bodies should not be burning out. (laughs) The Mm, way we talk mm, about burnout, mm. it's normal. Our bodies should never burn out. Burnout is literally just trauma um, happening to the body. I call burnout worker exploitation. Instead of calling it burnout, say I'm being traumatized by capitalism. And that's what burnout is.
0: And we don't—we don't even just like talk about it normally. It's—it's it's almost like a
1: badge of honor it as is. an organizer. I'm oh, burnt yeah. out. I'm so burnt out. I'm burnt out. Like the body is not built to burn out. The body is not—that's not why it was built. But when when we're in a culture that sees our bodies as a machine level pay, so that goes back to the historic part of this. Like what capitalism is was created and experimented on with on the bodies of, of of black people during slavery during the transatlantic slave trade and so they were pushing our bodies to see what it could hold. could a body work 20 hours a day without a break? could a woman have a baby? And then the same day, go back into the fields and continue picking her 500 pounds of pop cotton. Could that happen? Could we push? Could we do? And so the experimentations that were done on our body, on our ancestors' bodies during slavery, are really the, the foundation for the capitalism that we see today. And so to make the connections as a Black person that you're grinding, you're burning out, you're not listening to your body, you laboring like this, is really connected to the violence of that. And so I refuse to be aligned with it. I trust and believe that there is another way. I trust and believe that I can imagine and create and daydream and dream myself into another way. And I just don't believe that it's necessary for us to be able to get where we need to be. Um, I, I just will never be able to swallow that or take it. I'll refuse to grind myself into oblivion for a system that still owes my ancestors and me deep, deep deck. Like I would never do it.
0: You're listening to Lawn Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with the founder of the NAP ministry, Tricia Hersey, about her book, Rest is Resistance, a manifesto. Manifesto, that's a Mm -hmm. that's a word. That's a word. Talk to me about the choice of that word.
1: Yeah, I love the word manifesto. It's my favorite. I really wanted to have it be a manifesto when I began to write it. When I thought like, okay, I have the book deal. It's now time for me to start outlining and kind of devising what this book is gonna be. It was really important to me that it was something different, that it had form that was, um, unique to itself. I think what mat- what makes manifesto so beautiful is that they are incantations. They're like these blessings. They're, you're attempting to create and build a future that isn't already there. And so I use a lot of, um, Different forms. I use poetry. There's a memoir in there. I talk a lot about my family. There's a lot of history. I also, because I'm trained as a you know theologian in a seminary, person who went to seminary. I also um, was trained as a preacher, and so I understand the idea of sermon. So I did a lot of sermon, and I did a lot of questioning, a lot of just. Well, I'm just ripping. I'm just going down with questions. I wanted it to feel like a lullaby, like someone was actually reading something over you that could cause you to be in a trance. I wanted it to feel like trance work. And a lot of people have told me that there's a lot of repetition in that. I believe manifestos leave things out. You don't put every single thing in and you leave space for others to be able to get into the work into to, um, expand on it to find themselves in it so I left a whole whole lot out but to me um historically manifestos are things that are written in the in the middle of a crisis like I think about manifestos being written you know in the basements um with ink pens and markers and then being wrapped a brick is wrapped around and it's thrown through a window. You know, I wanted to feel like a brick being thrown <laughs> through a window. I want to feel like also a soft pillow. Like let's go lay down. I wanted it to feel kind of um, in a way people would just have to surrender to it. Like she just said that two pages ago. Why is she repeating it? I wanted it to be a lot of repetition because I believe that part of our socialization is that we've been brainwashed. I, I, Claim and name the brainwashing um, of capitalism and white supremacy on us from the time we were born so that we are able to now believe that we aren't worthy of rest. It's socialization and we're going to have to spend a full lifetime unraveling from. And so I think the unraveling process is going to be um, our whole lives. And I wanted people to just rest and sit. I asked people in the beginning of the book, I hope you're reading this while laying down. You know, manifestos are written from the point of view of disillusionment. You know, we're struggling back to hope and in its highest form, a manifesto really is a magic spell um, that is attempting to bring about a new reality to into existence. And so I really wanted this new reality around a rested world to begin to be started, to be came into existence. And they also challenge and provoke. So that was important to me as well. And they demand the impossible. And I mean, a lot of people hear my work and they say, that's, that sounds nice, but that sounds impossible. Like, how could I ever rest? That sounds whatever, girl. Like, I got to work. I got, I'm like, I understand that, but I want, I want to be in the impossible. I want to reside in the space of being unrealistic. I don't want to be realistic in a culture like this. <laughs> like, call. I don't want to be realistic in this culture. Thank you for calling me unrealistic and thinking about the impossible, because that's how we're going to really truly get free. That's right. So,
0: it's one thing to resist shifts, right, in our own life. Mm-hmm. But human
1: beings do this really
0: interesting thing, right? And when mm-hmm. we see other people
1: mm-hmm. making
0: shifts in their life, yes. um, sometimes we not only tell ourselves we can't do it, but then we tell other folks, well, no, you can't do that either. Yes, yes, Right. We and do. So I'm interested in particularly, right, in the organizer world, how did people, how did your circle, Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe even just, like, a little bit removed from your circle? How do sure. folks react when he was like, I'm taking yeah. a nap?
1: Yeah, I think even – that's such a good question because when I started – I was in seminary. I started in 2013 in graduate school. And then I, I was deeply into some organizing work, working with Black land liberation. So I was working with some organizers um, in a, a national training, where we were doing, looking at Black land. You know, I'm down here in Georgia in the South. So there's so many Black farmers and the idea of land and liberation is really unique. So I was going all over the country, New Orleans, North Carolina, all these like weak week-long trainings, two-week-long trainings were organized from all over. And I was in these meetings that were lasting forever. And I was also beginning the, the research around, maybe I could um, begin to experiment with this idea of resting as a justice work. And so I was just really in the beginning stages. So I was always provoking and always asking questions and raising my hand at meetings to be like, hey, um we've been Talking about this for five hours, can we take a break? <laughs> you know, can we take a break? Can we like put in a uh, rest time as part of this agenda? Can we go outside for a walk? Can we look at like a meditation moment? Can we begin to um have a day off? We can just have some pleasure because I think pleasure and leisure is also part of our liberation. And they were all like, Okay, no one got it. So it was it was some pushback in a way that people were like, How could we ever do that when we got an agenda to get through? We got to get to to the end of this week, and we got to go and do this direct action. Like, no, we can't. And I and so I begin to slowly see that this work is people have to really try to get underneath the work and get in it. And it's going to take a lot of time. It's not going to be something that's going to be easy. It's going to take this lifelong, meticulous unraveling. And also it's embodied work. So you can't just talk about it. You have to actually do it. You know, this is the thing. Like, instead of us talking about it, why don't we just actually close our eyes and take a nap now in between this little break that we have here and and see what that brings up for us. Let's see if people will feel a moment that maybe they'll be able to offer something different. And because I, I do believe that um, resting is a state that um, generates ideas, that it can generate new um, new places for us to land into, that it's a third space, that it is a portal for deep imagination, and I think without imagination, our movement work is done. I really do. I don't think people say that enough. I think they think as long as we got the paperwork, as long as we got the people on call, as long as we can come together in the streets, that we're good. But no, without imagination in this movement work, we're done. And so I was wanting people to to begin to see resting as a tool to help us begin to tap into our um, imagination, to tap into our true resistance. And so it was people who just didn't understand. People were like that. But when they, when I would say it, they would be like, that does sound nice. So maybe we'll schedule that. Maybe we should just do that. So it was really a lot of just throwing it out there, letting people see how I move, letting them see how I you know, rested and how I tried to like have boundaries around my time, how you couldn't be texting me all day and night. And, and I also wanted people to tap into trusting. Like I trust and believe that um, there is so much work being done for us behind the scenes that we can't see from a spiritual sense, from a spiritual lens. I don't need to go scream and holler for 10 hours in front of the prison for it for me to be able to for it to be seen as important movement work there can be movement work that actually also looks like a slower pace that looks like people making systems of care for the organizers and for the people in the community, a part of the work, you know, for us to be able to see it as community driven care work. And so to uplift the idea of care was really important to me, but people just didn't get it. They didn't understand it when I said it in theory. So I think that, That's why I began to do all the collective napping experiences, that signature program where I actually was like, we're going to lay down. Here are the yoga mats. Here are the blankets. Here is the incense. Here is the tea. Here is the education around it. Take a nap. And every single time people will wake up in tears crying. I had never rested like that. Like I had a dream about my grandmother. She told me something I had never heard before. Like I feel like a human again. I feel whole. I'm so exhausted. My body hurts. Like all of these things that were like they were struggling with, um, began to loosen and begin to open when they begin to just rest together. I think it's such a um such a magical and um, inventive and truly a uh, radical place for us to lay ourselves down intentionally together with each other under the um, idea of disruption and also pushing back.
0: You are listening to and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with the founder of the Nat ministry, Tricia Hersey, and her book, Rest is Resistance, a manifesto. I I talked about being an older head and a harder head and, uh, Mm. in, in in movement work. And I say a lot of times to my team, right? Like I came up, uh, Mm. with the directive work, smoke, drink, die. Whoa,
1: wait, hold on. Wait a minute, wait, stop. (laughs) I've never heard this. You got to slow down and say that again. Work. yeah.
0: As as as, as an organizer, right? You work, you smoke, you drink, and then, and then, and then you die. And white supremacy doesn't sleep. So why are you?
1: Bless us. Wow.
0: <laughs> now, I refuse, right, to, to have that happen in my, in my team, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so we're trying real hard to do it different. Yes. Um, and I find, like, this is the conversation I have with organizers of my age. Whether there was those words or not, it was, it was implied. Like, you got to work it, you know, before the sun came up and you went mm-hmm. home
1: mm-hmm. when the work
0: was done, which is, like, never.
1: Um, oh. So
0: uh, have you found, though? Look, like I was telling you before we, you know, we have this recording that start before we start mm-hmm. the recording. That I've got this amazing team member, and I'm going to say her name, Asia, who <laughs> is is relatively new to our team. But she brought you and your nap ministry yes, with Asia. her. And yes. Asia did not ask for permission to bring the nap ministry comes, into the yes. workspace. Asia did not ask for permission to take naps during the so called workday. Asia Love just it. said, "This is what I do," and you actually, y'all should be doing this too. But if not, yes. right, I'll be over here and I'll see you in 20 minutes. <laughs> after my nap and I'm just wondering as you take your ministry around the globe do you find Mm -hmm. a generational difference Mm -hmm. in terms Mm -hmm. of who
1: more easily or less easily absorbs this yes that is a good question I see um but I also see people um of our generation, I'm assuming we're probably around the same age. I'm 48 years old. So I believe around people of my generation are the ones who need it the most. and But they are a little bit harder to yeah. pick it up. But once they can finally, they'll say to me, wow, like I've never heard of that. I don't know what that even looks like. I begin once they begin to experiment with it, they are able to begin to slowly see it as this revolutionary thought. Yes, younger people, like my son is 16 years old, Asia, other young people of that generation, the 20s, they are already on the path of creating a new world. They're the ones who are creating and thinking about things and breaking the binary and saying, no, we're not going to do it like that. Like They are already primed and already the ones who are leading us into the to the new world. And so I'm so grateful and I have so much hope around it that they're saying, no, I'm not about to work no damn uh, 80 hours a week. And um, I'm not about to do that. And they, they already are looking at things in a way that is so imaginative, that is so um, radical that they are able to quickly pick on and pick up the message. But I also feel like the ones of, of another generation are the ones who are surprisingly very, very um, happy when they hear my message. Some are like, I don't know about that, but when they hear me say that, explain it one more time, Trisha, what did you just say? And I break it down and like, whoa, I wish I would have known this 20 years ago. And wow, I can actually do that. So there's like this permission granted. There's a guide. There's um this new radical idea around the fact that what you have been taught has been a lie. And so the idea of revealing the scam of it all is what I'm really excited about for the, um, the generation that you're talking about. For them to begin to able to see, whoa, I've been bamboozled this whole time. You mean that I don't have to, live and work like this you mean that all of these things i've been taught about um productivity labor Mm -hmm. my body you know my boundaries it's all been a lie it all actually there's a point of grief that happens they're very they feel they feel sad that they've been manipulated this long so there's a lot of grief in this work this work um is deeply um radical in a way that it's removing veils from people's eyes. And so I believe that our bodies know the way that our bodies are a divine dwelling place, but we've been so bamboozled by the systems that the veil is so deep over our eyes that we can't see past it. So I want this work and believe it, that this work can be a veil buster. It can remove a little veil from the left eye, push a little. It don't even have to be the whole veil. The whole veil ain't got to be ripped off. I would love to rip the whole veil off. But even if a person could come out from the left eye and be like, wait, what? Say that again? You're saying rest can be a form of reparations. I could, when I rest, I'm not lazy. You know, when I'm resting, I'm actually generating new ideas. It's a creative space that it's a space that I don't have to earn. Like it really deeply, um, touches people in a way that's surprising and it, um, it gives them permission and it gives them a moment to be like, whoa, like it didn't have to be like this. And so I think this new awareness, this new revelation is really what I'm excited about.
0: Yeah. And real spit, Tricia, that as you were talking about the grief that comes up, like I, and I was listening to you like tears in my eyes right Mm. that um, I am I'm 47 and I've been an organizer Mm -hmm. my whole adult life and um man when I look at the toll on my body on my mental health my like it's a lot right the way that we were trained up to do this work and um I I, I'm, I'm thrilled that the generations after us do not have to do it me too That way, Trisha, the there are tenets to this business Mm -hmm. of the NAP ministry. If you would walk us through those, I would be deeply appreciative.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. So there's four tenets that I really spent, you know, time with, kind of experimenting with them as I was, you know, reading. I was um, studying my uh, research in school was Black Liberation Theology, cultural trauma, the somatics of the body womanism and so I was really trying to blend all these things and it was important for us to really uplift the body Um, so the number first tenet is number one rest is a form of resistance because it disrupts and pushes back against capitalism and white supremacy number two our bodies are a site of liberation number three naps provide a portal to imagine invent and heal. And number four, our dream space has been stolen, and we want it back. We will reclaim it via rest. Hmm. Say more about
0: our bodies mm-hmm. being a site yes. of liberation. I just love mm-hmm. them. That just sounds delicious. It's beautiful.
1: It's my it's my favorite one. I believe I believe that when you're when you're brought up and when you're raised in a in a culture like this, when you understand that the culture doesn't see. Us as humans, they don't see our bodies as anything divine. They simply see our bodies as a tool, um, as a, a, another cog in the wheel to like gain more wealth, to to build their wealth, to build the empire. The tenants, you know, the idea of capitalism, it has no bottom. You know, it says profit over people. It doesn't matter who you are. It will try to push a body to the full capacity, even to death. You know, I was. T- Doing some research and looking at the stuff that was happening at some of the Amazon factories, people are like literally passing out and dying on the floor, and people are like just walking over the bodies and continue to work. Like they're like, okay, we're going to get his body up and take it to the clinic, but we won't end the shift. Continue working. I'm like, someone just saw someone die. On the floor and they're like continue on. And that's just one of the many stories of how um, violent, how deeply dark and violent and no bottom that capitalism has. When you really get into the um, start reading slave narratives and and reading about what was happening on plantations. I mean, we think we know, but the the stories that I was reading, working in the archives, I'm here in Georgia, so I'm around a lot of places where there were a lot of plantations. I actually live off a street that is called Plantation Parkway (laughs) because it was like a plantation where I live. And so to be able to touch those documents when I was working at Emory in the archives, these documents where I would see something like This is a a book and it's from the owner of this plantation down here in Southern Georgia. And it says each thing that is on his property, so it'd be like a horse, a hundred dollars. You know, our meal is going to cost this, a black child, $50. You know, it's just like listing people like along with property, along with tools, along with his hammer along with a horse. And then there's just a black body, $50, a black child. So when I, when I began to deeply look at what they were doing and how sinister it was, I understood that how deep the body and how important it is to look at this from a somatic place. When I think about somatics, I think of what the body can hold, how our mind and body is connected, that our bodies become this site of liberation, that no matter where our bodies are, we can gain power, we can have liberation, we can be able to tap into the antenna that connects us directly to the ants to the ancestor and also to to spirit and and creator. And so I really wanted People to understand that it doesn't matter if you have a a good job, a bad job, you have a phone, you don't have a home, you're in prison, you're here. That if you have a body, if you have a divine dwelling place, that you've been gifted a body in this form and you've been chosen to be born and you're on this earth, that you already have all the tools needed to be a liberationist, to be able to liberate yourself from freedom, no matter what anything else is going on, no matter what system you land in, what place. Or space you land. And I think about the Maroons of North America. That I talked about in my book. How they were literally jumping off slave ships. Like I know that y'all are pulled up to this place in savannah georgia but that ain't me and they weren't fugitives that's the key they weren't fugitives because they just were free they were like i'm deciding i'm not a part of that like i'm creating a third space i'm going to create another moment a temporary space of joy and freedom and i don't belong to you and so to tap into the idea that this body that we have doesn't belong to the system that it doesn't it's not here simply to make money it's not here simply to be pushed you know, I think that is such a powerful place in a, um, in, a, in a culture that we live in that doesn't see us like that, that doesn't teach us to um, honor our bodies as actually a t- um, technology that can actually help us to get free.
0: Tricia, I don't want to lose this thread that we sort of tugged a little bit at the beginning about the importance of imagination, and yes. particularly in this moment. So, and we talk about reimagining public safety, um, right? That that was actually my the name of my public safety policy platform uh, I ran when I ran uh, for office out here. Um, but I connect that not but and uh, I connect that directly to the role of artists in this work, right? Like that which we can't see, but that artists that that's yes. their job in this. That's that's their gift. Thank that's, for their, the that's their their magic. Yes. yeah. Yes. And I just mm-hmm. would was I just would love to hear you talk about that a little bit because you yes. too are an artist. I
1: am an artist. I, I I say that in the book. I say I don't think I would have been able to come to this work and be able to birth it and kind of flesh it out and experiment with it if I wasn't an artist. I just don't. I think I probably could have come to some of the theories from a different way, but I don't think I would have been able to bring it together and experiment with it um, in a way that unless because of my training and because of my practice as an artist, I have a deep art practice. I've been an artist since I was like a teenage. I've always been a poet, a writer, a theater maker. Um, you know, I think art is, artists is here to shine a light on the world, to be able to begin to imagine a new place. And so I think deeply about this work and this the Nat ministry started as a performance art installation it started from an art practice like our very first event was me doing a full-on one woman one woman performance art show looking at um slave narratives and all the archival work that I was doing so I just wanted to present it to the people so I was looking deeply into the archives trying to touch I was you know, getting cotton, raw cotton from farms. I wanted to see what 500 pounds of cotton would look like. What could a body be pushed to do? I wanted to like delve into that by experimenting with my own body, experimenting with sleep, waking up, you know, journaling my dreams, you know, connecting in those ways. I think that um, James Baldwin talks about this a lot. Any artist, any person that you speak with, they'll say like, that is the role of an artist in this culture and why I think art and artists are so important for this culture. They're so important for our liberation. They're so important for our organizing, is that we have people who are able to look under and beneath and around, who are able to hold space for imagination, they're able to hold space for experimentation. And they understand that what you see is just one level. You know, there's what you think. And they also can get out of the binary. I think the binary is killing us because people think um, they hear about my work and they say, oh, my God, that sounds nice, sis. But oh, I got to work. How am I going to eat? And I'm like, I listen, like, I, I don't I'm not some I'm not some crazy. Oh, I understand that. We have to work in a capitalist system or you will be homeless and on the street. Unfortunately, that's the way it is here. So I'm not saying that there's only two ways. There's infinite imaginative ways for us to be able to survive and thrive in this culture. We don't, it's not either take a nap and rest and don't abuse your body or you know, be homeless, you know, like there are, there is like so many other ways to be able to see this. There's so many other ways to be able to get to the end of the road here. And so I think because I'm an artist, I'm able to hold space for the idea that there is infinite ways to be there. um, there There's infinite ways to love. There's infinite ways to look at an issue and that we can look under and around and we can um, open and expand our mind Afrofuturism is very important to the work. I talk about Sunrise in my book. I talk about the idea of um, being able to dream, the idea of teaching young people from a very early age that their imagination is their greatest tool and that the culture doesn't want you to have it because If you are in an imaginative space, if you're in a well-rested space, if you're in a space where you're tapped into the divine and that you're connected to your body and you're not disconnected. So when we're exhausted and we overwork ourselves, our bodies, we're disconnected to the wholeness of our body. So I think the more that we can tap into that, the better. But when you're in that place that I'm speaking about, this rested, connected, deeply community driven space. It will be over for the systems. The systems would crumble under the fact that we are tapped into our divine energy as human beings and that we are not exhausted and that we are um, opening up our minds and bodies to the antenna of the ancestors and to God and to um, the earth, you know? And so it's a big, huge connection that we have to be able to see that our bodies are our own that we don't belong to these systems, that there are other ways. There is another way. Another way is possible. Another world is possible. And so I am a student of Audre Lorde, of um, Bell Hooks. I came up um, reading all of these works. So what I'm saying is not new. They've been preaching, Octavia Butler, they've been preaching these ideas of imagining a new way of thinking outside the box. And we just have to continue to dig back and reach back into their teachings, into also the teachings of our ancestors to be able to know that we're going to be okay. We're going to make it, but we're not going to make it if we're um, killing ourselves via um, sleep deprivation and exhaustion.
0: Trisha Hersey, that is the perfect note to end on. I want to thank you so much for your work and for this amazing conversation.
1: Thank you. It's been amazing. Thanks for having me. I loved it.
0: Y'all are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, and we have been in conversation with the founder of the NAP Ministry, Tricia Hersey, who is also an artist, poet, theologian, and community organizer. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive.